Mountain. It is good to be back with you. Uh, last week, if you didn't notice, I was not here. Uh, I was at the Gospel Waltz weekend retreat that our church puts on, and if you haven't been to that, uh, let me just commend it to you. It was so encouraging, so refreshing. It was just a great opportunity to hear the gospel afresh and to hear what it means to live in the light of that gospel. And if you haven't gotten to be a part of that, next time it comes around, I would just strongly encourage you, please go take part. I promise you'll be blessed. It was really, really well done. Uh, And I'm also grateful that while I was away, uh, Walker Bird filled in so well for me uh, as the preacher, even continued our series in Mark chapter 2. And he did an exceptional job. I was really just encouraged to hear him open up the scriptures and to talk about Jesus' healing of the paralytic. And we're going to pick up right where he left off. Jesus has healed this man who could not walk, and he has shown that he is the one who has authority to forgive sins. And suddenly there's this turn in Mark's gospel. Suddenly, there is resistance to Jesus' ministry, and it's not from the people that you would expect it. It's not from the profligate sinners. It's not from the prodigals. It's from the people that you would think would welcome Jesus the most. It's from the religious leaders. And they suddenly have all these questions for Jesus. Verses 13 to 17, they're wondering why Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Verses 18 to 22, they're wondering why his disciples are not fasting like they are, or even like John's disciples are, but instead are feasting as though they're at a wedding. And then, in our text today, those simmering tensions, they suddenly come to a boil. Because Jesus begins to press into this thing that to them is even more precious still. Their view of the Sabbath. Stand with me as we read from God's word. Starting in Mark chapter 2 verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, to Jesus, look, Why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath 
to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy, to kill him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are so grateful that as we come to this text, Lord, we find a Savior of sinners. Lord, we, we just sang as our first song, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. And if there is ever a text that exposes that neediness, it's this one. And so, Lord, we pray as you expose our need, would you by your Spirit also give us eyes to see our Savior. To see you, Lord Jesus, in all of your beauty, all of your goodness, all of your kindness. And to see you as the one who has come for us. Would you do this now in your precious name, we ask. Amen. In his memoir, Where the Light Fell, Philip Yancey tells the story of his religious upbringing, and, and the only word to really describe it is abusive. And if you don't know that name, uh, Yancey's a, an author who, over the past 30 years, has, has written books that have sold millions upon millions of copies. It's been, his books have been translated into multiple languages. They are books that proclaim the grace of Jesus, and yet, if you knew about his childhood, you would not imagine that to be the case. Because he was a young man who was raised in a home by a woman who was one way with the church and a completely different way at home. A woman who in the eyes of their church was a living saint. A widow who was raising these two young boys in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. A woman who would have been a missionary if her husband hadn't died so prematurely. A woman who devoted all of her time to teaching God's word and caring for children. But when you went home, behind closed doors and away from the eyes of the church, she was something else entirely. She was a woman who was psychologically and physically tormenting her two young boys and telling them that they needed to atone for the death of their father that they needed to live the life that he could no longer live, that they needed to go into the mission field because their father couldn't go into the mission field anymore. And if they did not live up to that expectation, then not only were they outside of her will, they were outside of God's. And wrath would be what awaited them if they did this. When Marshall... Philip's older brother told their mom that he was going to transfer from the fundamentalist Bible college he was at to what their mom thought was the bastion of liberalism, Wheaton College. <laughs> their mom looked at Marshall and said, I'm going to pray every day that the Lord breaks you. Specifically that you're going to get in a car wreck and become paralyzed, so you have to lie in your bed the rest of your life knowing that you violated the will of God. Can you imagine growing up with a vision of God like that? And it wasn't just from his mother, it was the church, too. 
that the church that they went to was one that Yancey said it was too conservative for any denomination. It was one where your acceptance was all conditioned on your acceptance, your adherence to a set of rules that they created, and not just on your adherence to those rules, but this was the 60s, on the color of your skin. And he said that growing up, there was this image of God that began to form in his mind of this towering figure of flaming holiness who was always ready to twist your arm to force you to do his will. This cosmic bully who had demands that never ended. One who said, do, 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 and if you do not, then hell awaits. And when he got to college, Yancey said it was a God whose yoke he not only bristled under, it was a God from whose yoke he really, really wanted to escape because the yoke was heavy and the burden was hard. And even as we hear that story, as extreme as it is, we all recognize something familiar in it, don't we? I mean, we are living right here in the heart of the American South, what Flannery O'Connor called the Christ-haunted South. There are churches on every corner, more, frankly, I'm coming from Atlanta, I'm just going to say, more in Birmingham than I think I've ever seen. They're everywhere. Throw a rock, you hit a church. But this kind of religion, it shows up in churches sometimes with fire and fury, and other times it shows up served with a smile, but always at its heart it's the same. It's look this way, act this way, Talk this way, vote this way, send your kids to this school, dress in this manner, do these things, and if you do not, here is the door. It's religion that chews you up and spits you out, religion that has no place for dissent, no room for the broken, no room for the weak, and no room for sinners. What Jesus says to us in our text today is that that's the kind of religion Jesus hates. It's the kind of religion that makes Jesus angry. Because though it often bears his name, it damages the ones that he loves. People. And Jesus, while Jesus comes with a yoke, it's not a yoke that is heavy and a burden that is hard. It is a yoke that is light and a burden that is easy. Because who is Jesus? Not the cosmic bully, not the arm-twisting tyrant. He is instead, first and foremost, the life-giving Lord. You see it in this first part of the story. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath day, and Jesus' disciples are just sort of casually picking ends of grain to chew on as they're walking. They are snacking, if you will. And the Pharisees see this seemingly innocent, casual action, and they immediately have a question. Look, why are your disciples, verse 24, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, that sounds like a question that is completely out of left field to our modern ears. I mean, when we think of the Sabbath, in in the modern Western world, it, it is this thing of relative indifference, I think, to most of us. But in the ancient Near East, that would have not been the case. The Sabbath was one of two things that marked out God's people as distinct in the midst of the world. The first being circumcision and the second being the Sabbath. It was this command that God gave his people in the Ten Commandments 
this command that was rooted in creation and in redemption, one that said that God's people on the seventh day of every week, they were to mark out sacred time. They were to rest from their labor in the same way that God rested from his on the seventh day. But it was also an ordinance that was rooted in their redemption. One that, as Deuteronomy 5 says, was to be done because the Lord had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was to be this constant reminder that they were God's beloved chosen people. That he was their God and he was their, that he was their God and they were his people, that they belonged to him, were loved by him, and that he had blessed them not to stay as they were, but so that they would be a blessing in the midst of the world, the means through which he brought his salvation to bear on every square inch of his creation. It was a gift given by a gracious father who loved his children, but here was the trouble. Israel never received it in that way. And if you've read the Old Testament, God's people didn't embrace God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is asking for their hearts, and what are God's people saying? Not a chance. They're going after every other lover, every other God, every idol they can find, and as they are doing that, they are over and over and over again breaking this day, this Sabbath day that God has given them as a gift and when God finally sends them into exile, after generations of sin, generations of God begging them to come home, God inviting them to experience his mercy, when God finally sends them into exile, there is this refrain for the reason why. It was because they did not keep his Sabbaths. It was the tangible expression of the hardness of heart that covered every page of the Old Testament. And so when Israel comes home from the exile, they did this thing that so many of us do in response to trauma. They made a vow. They said, if breaking the Sabbath is what got us sent into the exile, then breaking the Sabbath is something we are never going to do again. And so the religious leaders, they began to build these laws on top of laws, these hedges around the Sabbath day to make sure that nobody would ever come close to breaking it. It was sort of like the pastor from Footloose who is so concerned about drunkenness and premarital sex that he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to ban dancing because dancing could lead to those things. They had laws for every possible scenario. If, if your house, for example, was hit by a tree and it collapsed on top of you, According to the Pharisees, you could, on the Sabbath day, start to try to remove some of the rubble because that would be what they thought of as life-saving work. But if you discovered underneath the trees and the rubble and all the stuff that had collapsed on the house that the people inside were already dead, you had to immediately stop and leave the bodies where they were until the Sabbath was over because if they're dead, it's not life-saving work anymore. If they were alive, you could keep on digging and you could bring them out. But if their injuries were not life-threatening, if they were not the kind of injuries that were going to kill them, you didn't treat those injuries. So if they had a broken arm or a dislocated leg, guess what thing you didn't set or put back into place until the Sabbath day was over? The broken arm and the dislocated leg. You could be screaming in pain, but it was not threatening your life, so you were going to stay right where you were. 
Which brings us back to verse 24. Jesus' disciples are walking through this field and they are eating grain. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, that means they're doing what? Work. Not the kind of work that is needed to save their lives, but the kind of work that in their minds is not lawful on the Sabbath. And at this point, Jesus has already been shaking the very foundations of the Pharisaical worldview. I mean, they've created this whole system that says, here are the boundary lines for belonging. Here are the things that if you were to be part of the people of God, you have to do if you want to come inside. And Jesus, Jesus is just erasing those boundary lines. He's calling all the wrong people to come and to sit at his table. He's bringing tax collectors and sinners to sit and to eat with him, to fellowship with him. His disciples are doing all the wrong things. They're, They're not doing what the religious people are supposed to be doing. They're not fasting. They're feasting. And now they are violating this thing that, as we've said, is even more precious of all. So there is this question, why are they doing what is not lawful? And under that question is another. Why are you, Jesus, letting them? get away with it. And Jesus, as he is so prone to do when he finds a flammable situation, Jesus just sprinkles gas on the whole thing. (laughs) I mean, you can't read what Jesus says here and not see someone who's being deliberately provocative. Because he comes to these guys who from their childhood have immersed themselves in the scripture. They have the ancient equivalent of a master's of divinity and a PhD in theology. These are the experts in the law. And Jesus' response to their question is, have you never read about David? Have you never read the Bible? Imagine if someone walked into your workplace and started challenging you on whether or not you knew what you were talking about. That's basically what's happening. I mean, if you have any pride at all, that hits you, doesn't it? Jesus says, if you never read about what David did, and then he proceeds to tell this story that on the surface seemingly has nothing to do with the Sabbath at all. 1 Samuel 21, David is running from King Saul because Saul is trying to kill him because Saul knows that David is God's anointed king. David is hungry, he's in need, and so he goes into the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwells, and he's looking for food, but the only food that is available is the bread of the presence, this bread that was specifically set aside in God's law for one group of people and one group of people only, the priests. It was bread that was set apart as holy in the same way the Sabbath day was to be set apart as holy. And yet David who is not a priest, David not only takes that bread, David eats that bread, and then he gives it to his friends. And here is the part that the Pharisees have to know, but probably don't want to admit at this moment. The scriptures never criticize David for doing it. They can't miss what Jesus is insinuating. Jesus is saying, in times of human need, God's anointed king has the authority to do what sometimes, sometimes what is ordinarily unlawful. Even with the holy things, just like the Sabbath, which implies what? 
Somebody with authority like David is here. But then Jesus takes it a step further. It's not just that someone like David is here. It's that someone greater than David is here. Verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath. In two sentences, Jesus just took the entire Pharisaical project and blew it up. Because their whole world, it is built on do. Do this and then you will belong. Do this and you remain inside. And yet what does Jesus do right off the start? He says you have profoundly, for all of your knowledge, all of your study, you have profoundly misunderstood the law. You know all these things about it, but you are missing the one thing that matters more than anything else. You do not understand its heart. The law was not something for which man was made. The law was something that was made for man. The Sabbath was not something that man was made for. This burden that he was created to carry, the Sabbath was a gift that God intended man to have. It wasn't a gateway to belonging. It was a gift of God's grace to those who already belonged. It was God in his kindness, God in his love to the people that he loved and created and redeemed, inviting them to taste and to see that he is good. It was God showing them that in, while the Sabbath was built into the creational order, the Sabbath wasn't actually what was made first. Man was. And if the Son of Man, that's Jesus, if the Son of Man is the Lord of humanity, which when Jesus forgave sins, he's already claimed that he is, if the Son of Man is the Lord of humanity and the Sabbath is made for man, then what else is the Son of Man Lord over? The Sabbath which is a major problem for the Pharisees because who is the only person in the Old Testament who is ever called the Lord of the Sabbath? God. If there's ever someone who could challenge the interpretation of the law, it would be the one who gave that law, wouldn't it? Jesus isn't dismissing the Sabbath law here. He's not rejecting it. He's not casting it off and saying it doesn't matter at all. Jesus, Jesus is actually reaffirming it and putting it in its proper place. And he is demolishing the lie, this idea that God is a God of demands who is putting burdens on his people's shoulders, burdens too great for them to carry, burdens that are indifferent to their needs, and he is showing God instead to be someone totally different, a life-giving Lord who cares for the needs of his people who has given them this day not to crush them, not to hurt them, but that they would flourish. And any interpretation of that law that inhibits man's flourishing, as envisioned in Scripture, or that uses that law as a means of entry into God's covenant people, Jesus says not only is that interpretation wrong, it's unlawful. And how would Jesus know? Jesus says, because I'm that life-giving Lord. And here's the beauty of what follows. This life-giving Lord, that's not all he is. 
He is also the life-giving Savior because who is the Son of Man? He's the one who has come not for the lawkeeper, but for the lawbreaker, not for the healthy, but for the sick, not for the righteous, but for who? The sinner. When we get to chapter 3, all pretense on the part of the Pharisees is gone. They're asking questions earlier, now those questions, they're absolutely missing from this text. They're sitting there and they're looking at Jesus on the Sabbath day in the synagogue and they see this man with a withered hand and they've decided, verse 2, that they are going to use this as an opportunity to accuse Jesus. They can smell what the rock is cooking and they don't like it. It's a terrible joke, but it's true. Whatever he is for, they are against at this point. And they are looking at this man with the withered hand and they are hoping that Jesus heals him because if Jesus heals him, it won't be life-saving work, will it? Which means they are going to have the opportunity to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, which at this time could be a death penalty offense. They want to accuse him because they want to destroy him. That's what's happening. And Jesus, Jesus isn't stupid. He knows it. He's the smartest man who ever lived. He knows exactly what they are trying to do. He knows how they're trying to entrap him. He recognizes what will take place if he heals this man. And yet Jesus, Jesus doesn't hold back for a second. I mean, we've all been in situations like these. Those moments where you know what it is that you should do. You know what the right thing is to do, but you recognize there is a cost if you do it. You recognize that if you make this move, there could be consequences, and sometimes the fear of those consequences leads us to do what? To hold back. Not Jesus. Jesus sees this man in need, and Jesus, he doesn't scurry away, he doesn't hide. Instead, he calls the man to stand at the very front of the synagogue so that what the Pharisees are doing in the darkness would be brought into the light. And he looks at the Pharisees and he asks them this one very simple but devastating question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Verse 4, to save life or to kill There's only one answer to that question. The Pharisees' whole project is built on the idea that life-saving work is okay on the Sabbath. And they know the law well enough to know that it is never unlawful to do good. They know Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They know if they say to do good that they will be confessing that they, in fact, have been Sabbath breakers. They will be acknowledging in the presence of everyone that they are as in need of God's grace as the tax collector and the sinner. And so what do they do? In their pride and in their hard-heartedness, they say nothing. I said earlier that this is the kind of religion that Jesus hates. You see it right here. Because Jesus sees that hardness of heart. 
And what emotion springs from Jesus' heart? Anger. It says he looked around, verse 5, in anger, distressed over their hardness of heart. That language, it only appears one time in the Gospel of Mark, and it's right here. It is the language of internal anguish, of righteous rage, of someone who is literally just shaking because they cannot believe what they are seeing. And what is it that Jesus sees that so enrages him? He sees the thing that destroys what he loves, and that's people. He sees these hearts that are set against God's grace and set against his purposes, that are set against God's desire to bless his people and not to curse them, to save them and not to cast them off. And here is the great irony. The very people, the very people who built the hedge around the law so that they would not commit the sin of their ancestors, which was what, if you remember, hard-heartedness, what are they now exposed of standing in the presence of Jesus? The very same thing. Their hearts are as hard as Old Testament Israel's, and it shows itself in the way they respond to this one man's need, which tells us something vital. We tend to think of legalism and license as equal and opposite errors. Legalism is, I'm going to follow the law and do the law so that I can be accepted. License, license says, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to reject the law. Jesus says both of those, they are the twin fruits of the same rotten tree. They are the fruit of hardness of heart that looks at God and his law and sees not a king, not a lord, not a father, but instead a stingy tyrant who lays burdens on our backs and you either have to gut it up and carry the burden or you cast it away. And Jesus steps in and Jesus says that's not who God is at all. The litmus test, and they show themselves in the very next step that they're even more hard-hearted than you think they are because Jesus heals the man. He asks him to stretch out his hand. He stretches it out and it's restored. And what do these Pharisees do? It says they go out and they plot not to save life, but to take one. And on what day do they do it? Sabbath. They're looking to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And then by their own standards, they begin to break the Sabbath. Now here's the litmus test of all true religion. The litmus test, according to Jesus, of every heart that has been tamed by grace. It's how do we respond to the weakest and the neediest among us? What do our hearts do when we are confronted by someone in desperate need? And it's not just Jesus in this text who says it. In James 1, James, he's calling God's people to be hearers of the word, to hear the word of the gospel, to hear this word that can make us new, and not just to be hearers of that word, but to be doers of that word. And what does the doer of the word look like? He says in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion is this, that we do what? Visit widows and orphans in their affliction and keep ourselves unstained from the world. Which means if our hearts are hardened towards those in need, then not only are we not being doers of the word, 
but it is questionable whether we have heard the word of the gospel at all. That's a challenge. It is a challenge that should cut every single one of us to the quick, and it cuts me to the quick because it is possible to have a heart like that, not just in churches like Philip Yancey's or in synagogues like the Pharisees. It is possible to have hearts like that even in a church like this. Even in a heart like mine. It is possible to have a heart like that in a place where we expound the grace of Jesus again and again and again and again, where we confess it with our lips, and yet functionally in our hearts we are still living as though our acceptance and the acceptance of others is dependent upon what they do, and it reveals itself in this, the way we treat other people. I mean, you want to talk about a text that will skewer you. This one skewers me. I mean, I, I have four little girls in my home. They're wonderful. I love them. I can't tell you how many times I get frustrated because they come to me in their need. As much as I love them. I, I had to repent to them out loud three different times yesterday because I snapped at them because I couldn't, couldn't think straight anymore. That's my heart. It is a heart that in so many ways is still hard. A heart that in so many ways still looks like the Pharisees, and I don't think I'm the only one in the room who feels that way. So what do you do with a withered heart? Jesus in this text says, I can tell you the answer. It's what he's been inviting the Pharisees to do the whole time, and they just won't do it. It's bring our withered hearts to the one who heals withered hands. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who has perfectly kept the Sabbath. And the Pharisees know it. Because what's the one charge they don't bring against him when they try to crucify him? Sabbath breaking. They know he's right. And yet what does Jesus do? as the one whose heart is so bent to care for the weak and for the needy, even for those who have rebelled against him and even for those like the Pharisees who have dragged his name through the mud. His heart is so bent towards us that the Sabbath keeper dies in the place of Sabbath breakers. He bears the weight of the condemnation that we deserve. And he doesn't just bear the penalty for us. He presents us before the Father, not as we are, as those who are indifferent to the needs of others and whose hearts are hard and and broken and empty. He presents us in such a way that when the Father looks at us, he sees the one who healed the withered hand. The heart so full of compassion, he is angry when he sees people dismissing those in need. And that Jesus, he does one thing more. In his resurrection glory, he sends his spirit. And through that spirit, he doesn't just restore withered hands, he restores our withered hearts, not immediately like he does this man's hand in this text, but bit by bit, day by day, moment by moment, not by our power, but by his. And here's the beauty, while that work is slow, it's sure. Because Jesus is the one who does it. 
that's our hope this morning. That is the Jesus who revealed himself to Philip Yancey in a moment when he did not feel as though he could walk with him another step. It is a God who makes prodigals the heroes of his stories and not Pharisees. It is one that, as Philip Yancey said, changes our whole lives with the grace of his gospel. In the churches of my youth, Yancey wrote, we sang about God's grace, and yet I seldom felt it. I saw God as a stern taskmaster, eager to condemn and punish. In Christ, I have come to know instead a God of love and beauty who longs for our wholeness. I assumed that surrender to God would involve a kind of shrinking, avoiding temptation, grimly focusing on the spiritual things, while I prepared for the afterlife. On the contrary, God's good world this world that he made along with its Sabbaths, presented itself as a gift to enjoy with grace-healed eyes. I came to love God out of gratitude, not fear. Above all else, grace is a gift, one I cannot stop writing about until my story ends. My prayer is that that would be our story as well. Because who is this Jesus? He is the life-giving Lord and the life-giving Savior, and his yoke. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is rest for our souls, but only in him. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so thankful that we have in Jesus a Savior who is sufficient for our every sin, that we have one who is so concerned with us, whose heart is so moved by our need, even the need caused by our own sin, that, Lord, it, it gives you a righteous anger on our behalf. We thank you for one who is willing to stand in our place. We thank you for one who would make us new. We thank you for one who does this work, who doesn't call us to a religion that says do, 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 but instead to one in which you have said done. Meet us now in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me to receive the Lord's benediction? May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption the forgiveness of your sins. Amen.